You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. Masterclass. I'm so excited for this conversation. We're joined by Professor Albert Grundling, who is Emeritus Professor at the University of Stellenbosch. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So the way this conversation kind of got sparked, we had a caller a few weeks ago that mentioned something along the lines of this is why the Afrikaners in South Africa and the English-speaking white South Africans don't get along. It dates back all the way to the Anglo-Boer War. And I thought we definitely need to have that conversation because so many of us don't actually know the details. Yes, uh, I think that used to be a common kind of attitude. But over the years, that's dissipated and it's rapidly disappeared already since the 1960s. Although one can understand that there may be residual feelings among certain sections of the population, although they must be in rapid decline uh, because this war took place such a long time ago. But it did leave a legacy and... uh, of, of mutual distrust, at least, if not necessarily hatred. Uh, so um, one has got to go back to 1899, 1902. And uh, one has also got to bear in mind that this war is the closest that South Africa came to a total war. Mm. In other words, not only soldiers were involved, but also civilians. And that played out in the so-called concentration camps, where the Boer women and children were herded into these camps once their farms had been destroyed. Yes. And I think that in particular left a very bitter aftertaste. And usually when Afrikaners of a certain ilk, when they talk about the war, that is the one dimension which which they will consist, which they will persist in raising. And that is not without a certain validity if you take into account that uh, 27,924 women and children died in these camps, predominantly uh, children. About 10% of the total Boer population perished in these camps. It is not through a deliberate act of genocide on the part of of the British forces or the British High Command, but it was a a question of complete neglect and, and, and utter disarray and uh, lack of administration to run these camps properly and along healthy lines. Now, having said that, <clears throat> one has got to bear in mind that almost at least 20,000, if not more, black people also died in similar camps. Mm. And at times, black and whites were together in the same camp, and not, not on a large scale, but there are examples of that. And I, and, so, I think, and I think it's so important for that to be known because so many people don't know that there were black people that fought in that war. But I'm curious, you know, before we even touch on the camps, if we can go back to the build-up of this war officially please. beginning, what was, what was happening in South Africa at the time and then what was the thing that triggered? Because we know wars don't just suddenly start. It is a build-up of things. Yeah. It, uh, to, to, to put it bluntly and, and briefly, 
it was part of the British expansionism during the late 19th century, uh, British imperialism. Britain had showed no particular interest in the, in the old Transvaal at the time. And uh, they, till gold was discovered in 1886. Then they realized that that may shift the, uh, it, may, it may actually shift the power from the Cape and Natal, which, which was predominantly, which was in, in, in British colonies, to the Transvaal will now become much more powerful. And particularly Milner argued that that process had to be had to be usurped, that the Transvaal had to become and the British had to be roped in to be part of the British uh, supremacy. Mm. And that in a nutshell, there are various other reasons for it as well, the Outlander issue, Outlanders and the Jemison raid. But in a nutshell, the British wanted control of the gold fields because it, not only did that provide immense wealth, but it also provided power to be the supreme uh, force in Southern Africa. And uh, with that, the Free State joined up with the, with the Transvaal forces, as they have agreed on in earlier, in earlier arrangements, that if the one is threatened, the other one will come to its aid. Mm. In that way, the Free State was drawn into it, although it wasn't a Free State war to start off with. But just to, so, to, to, to uh, clarify with what you're saying then, because obviously we're refer- uh, uh, referencing Transvaal and the the Orange Free State at the time. What hmm. were they republics at the time? Both of them were republics, yes, with their own president, their own legislation. Yes. Uh, and uh, what was called Volksraad, they call it the Houses of Parliament. Mm. Uh, and they were they were independent states. Mm, mm. Of course, no state is completely independent. You, you you're also dependent upon states around you and export and economics and all of that. But, yes, but constitutionally they were independent. And then for 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 those that are not tr- uh, too familiar with history, the then Orange Free State. Was it the same Orange Free State that we knew of in the last two and a bit decades? The, the area was the same, yes. Okay. Exactly the same yes, yes. Okay, so, so now you have these two states that say, let's join forces and, um, you know, the Free State is going to support the South African Republic being the Transvaal. Um, to prevent Great Britain from taking over. Yeah, yeah. It uh, it started off as a conventional war. By a conventional war, I mean where the two armies were lined up against each other, and they obviously fought with guns and Mausers and Lee Metfords and and uh, those kind of rifles and 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 cannons and regular kind of conventional warfare. Initially, the Boers looked like they could gain the upper hand, but once British reinforcements arrived, they relieved Kimberley, they relieved Lady Smith and Mafeking as well. Then the tide turned against the Boers around about January 1900, after the war had started in October 
1899. And uh, once the poor republics, the capitals were captured, the Bloemfontein in the Free State, and Pretoria, Bloemfontein was captured on 15th of March, and, and Pretoria the 5th of June. Then the British thought, well, now the war is over and done with. Uh, it's like any European war. If you capture the capitals, then the war is concluded. The hostilities will come to an end and the foe has been defeated. They didn't fully understand the kind of sense of poor resentment and rebelliousness and also that the Boers knew the lie of the land. They could conduct a guerrilla war, which they did for two years after the, 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 the capitals had been captured. Uh, that meant they lived off the land, they attacked British railway lines, they attacked British troops where it was possible for, for them to do so. And in order to live that, in order to do that, they had to live off the land as it were. In mm. other words, they also visited their farmsteads in the process to replenish their, uh, their uh, goods for to carrying on the water resources. But the British had this farm, so the British then decided, well, these farms have now become legal war targets because they've been used for military purposes. Mm. It's at that point that the Kitchener started the the um started the scorch earth policies by burning down these farms. And that and then the camps was a direct result of that. Can I just ask now, at the time, where was the world sitting in regards to this war that was taking place? What was the standing of the West and and the and any of the countries who cared to be concerned about what was happening in the South of Africa? Yeah, there was considerable interest in uh, and in countries like America, uh, USA, in, in Germany, in Holland. Holland was quite sympathetic because of the Dutch connection with, with the Boers. And, uh, um, but it was all, the Boers also overrated that. Although there was some sympathy, and even in Russia there was some sympathy because it was seen as a war against imperialism, against capitalist forces. And some Russian troops actually came out to fight on the side of the Boers. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know that the Russian troops came through. Yeah, no, not not many of them, but a sizable number sided with the the Boer forces. But there was a, but it wasn't official. Uh, They just came out and uh, people were adventurous in those days. They were it was a great adventure to come to the southern tip of Africa. So, um, uh, but the, the governments, although they claimed to be against the war, they never actually made the point that clear that they will support the Boers against Duke, uh, against Great Britain. Uh, that was never on the cards. But the Boers overestimated Dutch and uh, and German support. They hoped that the Dutch would intervene on their behalf and so Germany. That never happened. They, Germany played its own politics, so did Holland or the Netherlands. And uh, so that, but the Boers believed in that. And that was one of the reasons why they persisted in fighting to what they called the Bitter End, why they stayed in the, in the felt for such a long period. 
amongst other reasons, of course, but those were one of the ideas that were peddled and that, that kept them uh, in the saddle, as it were. Okay, and and I I think it's it's um I honestly didn't know the part about the Russians, but what you're saying hmm. about you know the stubbornness at the time of um, persisting yeah. even when the capitals were taken. So just in terms of and I, I recall in, in in my history class when we're learning about World War One and Two, it hmm. even got into such detail where they would talk to us about what would happen. For example, on a public holiday, that those at war would stop to, you know, eat and drink together. We would learn about all the different types of diseases that they would get from, you know, living off of tinned food. And I'm curious about what was the day to day like in that war at its hardest of, of, of times? And were they, yes, it was. You know, the South African Republic at the time, the Transvaal, the Orange Free State that were participating. But were there, were there parts of the country at the time where individuals were just purely not affected by this war going on? Or was it everybody was was right in the middle of it? Well, the thing is that uh, that was why it was called a total war, because it was hard to escape the um, theater of war. Although some people defected to, to the Cape Colony, uh, some boys, and, and others, uh, interestingly enough, went to what was pursued to land at the time, to, to get out of the theater of war. Uh, they mainly, the boys mainly lived off the field. They slaughtered uh, uh, cattle. And, and also when they raided British soldiers, they took tin food and the rest with them. They also, towards the end of the war, even wore British uh, uniforms, which was a criminal offence, of course, but they, because their clothing became so tattered. But uh, to, to get back to, uh, very few people could actually, in the Transvaal and the Free State, escape the ravages of the war. Towards the end of the war, it was calculated that there were about 10,000 Boer women and children who refused to go to the camps or managed to escape, were roaming the countryside in, in, and alongside mountain passes, alongside, particularly in the eastern, uh, eastern uh, free state with the Basutu border, today the Clarence area, Fuchsburg area, uh, trying to hide from the British in caves, etc. So it was hard really to escape that. One must also be realistic about who fought in this war and how did they die. If one looks at the number of, if I can carry on along this line, then it may be useful just to have an overall picture. Yes. That, uh, you know, over over 500,000 men, British soldiers were came to South Africa. Against them, there were 88,000 poor uh, soldiers who could be mustered. So not all of them went to war, but those are men that were at the age where they could be called up. And Some and just just just, just so I may ask on that, I mean the the the, the Boers were obviously highly outnumbered at the time. And yeah. and I want to, you know, ask you about the details of what weapons were we talking about at the time. But before then, when you speak about those that were available to be soldiers. I mean, 
Was it a case of conscription as in if you fall within this age group and you are a, a man, it is compulsory or was it volunteering at the time? I also want to take a step back, you know, where you mention that it was illegal to put on the British uniform, but I'm like, where does the law even fit in when it when you're in the middle of war? Well, yeah, that's precisely it. Those are very good questions. Just to answer the last one first, the Hague Convention, that was supposed to be a set of rules that governed warfare, which was more honored in the breach than in reality. Uh, that was determined there. But uh, to get back to the Boer forces, now those are, those are interesting issues because uh, we always... There's sort of a, a, a reigning and, and a pervasive notion that these boys were indomitable fighters. Now, some of them were, but others were just laggards, and they were called up. Legally, they could be called up, but they didn't bother to turn up. They uh, And when they went on commando and it was time to go back to the farm to look at the cattle or, or to... Uh, to attend to farming uh, interest, their own farm interest. They just left the commander, and there was no way of stopping them. Mm. As a matter of fact, uh, after Paderbach, it was in the Western Free State, the Boers lost 4,000 men there. And after that, uh, many of them lost heart, and they became what was called hands-uppers. They just refused to fight any longer. They supposed to sign an oath which said they will be neutral, which they did. The British allowed for that to happen. So, so and it's not really—it's not really a surrender. No, no, no it's not surrender. Not, not an official surrender. They decided on their own. They had enough of the war, and they—they—they they, they just simply deserted. And the Boer forces didn't have the manpower. The military police didn't exist at that time. Mm. So they just tootled off to the farm as deserters, and uh, they were, of course greatly hated and detested by the Boers later on, uh, after the war. But but even more so, there were about, of those, um, just to give you some numbers, that uh, there were about 88 people who were eligible men to be, to be uh, called up. Of those, about at least 25,000, even 40,000 deserted. So you were left with half the force at one mm. point. And they became even more depleted towards the end when only 17,000 Boers were in the felt uh, when peace was concluded in June and June, uh, in, in May uh, 1902. And to add to that, which is, it was an interesting development and it, it runs against the line that once again that these Boers were such intrepid, such loyal kind of nationalists that they fought till the end. Of course, some did, others did not. What happened was that some Boer forces actually joined up with the, some Boer, uh, Boers actually joined up with the British forces. And they became what was known as national scouts. So for all intents and purposes, they were traitors because they were still supposed to be Transvaal uh, subjects. Mm. But they joined up with the British. The reason for that was they got well paid by the British. About five and five and a half thousand of them fought on the side of the British. They were fairly well paid. And many of them came from poorer stock and they were promised land after the war, which was, of course, a great attraction to them. 
And I thought, well, you know, this war is going, it's got to come to an end. The sooner the better, then we can get some land. And we could, well, they also claimed to put an end to the suffering of women and the children, which was a bit of a false argument. It was just because they were paid. That was the main motivation, really. But uh, so the Boer forces were quite uh, divided mm. in, in, in at the end of the war in May 1902. Mm, mm. So what I want to do when we come back to our master class, please, 11 the professor is here to answer your questions. I definitely want to touch on the type of weaponry, what happened to, you know, what was happening at the time to the black people that weren't being pulled into the war. I'm curious, again, like I said, I mean, um, what the day-to-day life was like and i want to hear some of your stories if you know of anybody that was in the war and shared war stories oh double one double eight three oh seven oh two it's two thirty seven oh two master class on our master class today we're talking the anglo-boer war but actually it was also known as the south african war we're taking your calls on oh double one double eight three oh seven oh two in the whatsapp line oh seven two seven oh two one seven oh two share the stories that you've heard from your grandparents maybe you know somebody who was in the war and told you some of the things that history textbooks and even our dear professor Professor would never have insight into and our guest for this conversation is Emeritus Professor at the University of Stellenbosch, Professor Albert Grindling. Um, Professor, before we went uh, to the news, I was just thinking about where, you know, you mentioned that there were black people um, that were in the war. So for at the, at the time um, where obviously this is pre-democracy, this is pre so many things that were happening in the country where were all the other black people in the country that were not being put in the war well the uh, black people were mainly in in natal or it was known as natal at the time and in the eastern province today the eastern cape uh the issue of blacks in the blacks in the war it remained dormant in the historiography in the writing of history for a considerable period it was only in the late 1980s or middle 1980s that serious work appeared and that uh, Africans became much more visible in historical writing. Mm. Uh, and, uh, that partly was because of what happened in the rest of the country in the 1980s with a serious unrest and, and uh, 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 opposition to apartheid took on considerable new dimensions and uh, and there was a greater awareness that this wasn't a white man's country and that uh, its history was much more complicated than often assumed and that included the, the so-called Anglo-Boer War. Part of the reason why it's called the South African War is a fairly recent innovation because uh, it was, that gives you, it conveys the idea that it wasn't only the, the Brits or the Boers who fought, it was everybody in South Africa was involved. So it's an inclusive term, mm. the South African War. Um, yeah, let, let me just carry on a bit about, uh, about black, but, uh, the position of black people. Mulner was British High Commissioner claimed that they were also fighting this war to provide greater opportunities and, and, and rights for Africans in what was Transvaal and the Free State. 
but uh, that was just an uh, an aside, really a facade. It it wasn't what he really intended. Uh, it was just to get to get liberals on his side, and then it was the issue whether blacks should be armed during the war. Particularly, the Boers were sensitive to that, as they argued that if you're going to teach black people to shoot, mm. then and they come back from the war, they may just as well turn the the, the guns or the rifles on the on, on the Boers in the in the countryside. So there was a lot of sensitivity on that score, given the kind of thinking prevailing at the time. Eventually, the British did arm about 30,000 uh, uh, black people. And there were actually more armed black people at <laughs> the end of the war than there were Boers in the Felt. Oh, wow. Like said, there were 17,000 Boers in the Felt and about 30,000 uh, armed black people. And one of the reasons why uh, the Boers decided to end the war because they realized not only were their own people, as I've said earlier, fighting against them, the 5,000 so-called joiners and national scouts and those, and, and 30,000 Africans also were now armed and ranged against 17,000 uh, Boers. So all those, those kind of factors impinge on their thinking. So uh, black people weren't only... Uh, yeah, there's a, of course many of them suffered during the war, and even more so than than than, than white Afrikaners. But they weren't completely at, at the mercy of forces around them. They were they also had their own agency, mm. and some of them were quite uh, innovative in, in 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 selling food and foodstuffs to to British soldiers, and some of them actually benefited from the war by selling what we would call today groceries to the British forces. So some of them made some money out of the war, but those were the small majority. The, the most of them uh, uh, really suffered during the war. Uh, the, at the end of the war, of course, uh, the issue of whether African people should get the franchise, even uh, the stricter franchise, uh, was not really considered. Uh, the British didn't consider it, despite their initial claims that this war was also a war for African people to get uh, uh, to to be enfranchised or have a greater say in, in matters in the Transvaal and the Free State. Uh, many of these uh, African intelligentsia, what today we call black middle class, uh, were well schooled. Mm. They were deeply disappointed by the outcome of the war as they sided with the British, at least, if not an actual felt, at least in terms of their sentiments, that they were all subjects of the, of the Queen, they hoped, and they would benefit accordingly. It didn't happen. This position stayed the same. And if one looks at the history of the ANC, often that's only mentioned in passing that the ANC was established in 1912, and that's it. But underlying that was a deep resentment about what happened to black people, particularly the intelligentsia, who could have had the vote if you looked at the, mm. the, the regulations for obtaining the vote, didn't get the vote in the Transvaal and the Free State. And that led to a number of what was called of 
Native Vigilance Association, small towns all over the Free State and the Transvaal. So, so started prof- organizing politically. What I want to do, Professor, be, before we go too far, I quickly want to take some calls so that our listeners can get an sure, opportunity. Sure. Uh, we've got Michael in Johannesburg. Michael, thank you for being so patient. Yes, uh, so my grandfather was an Englishman, but he left the country on the same train to Lorenzo Marx with President Kruger because he worked for the German Siemens Company and he was x-raying war soldiers behind the lines and he was wanted for a traitor. But he returned to South Africa later on after the amnesties and everybody was granted amnesty. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's, that, 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 that's quite unusual. Of course, Korea left. So Korea was too old to continue the war. And then he left via uh, Rolinzo Marx to, to go to Holland. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, uh, that is un- unusual and not well known kind of for what you've been saying. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael, for that call. Chris in Soshanguve, hi. Yes, man, how are you? Good, thanks, and you? All right, my name is Michelle Chris I'm from, from uh, Soshanguve. Mm. Very interesting uh, topic. I've done it here at school. What is... Uh, the interesting part of it, no? The Anglo War uh, started 1899 until 1902. Mm. They sent the people of Sir And then uh, to amend this rivalry, in, if you check uh, the Queen of uh, England, mm. uh, this crown uh, they have in the head, yeah? mm. in the head. That diamond uh, come from South Africa. Mm. But the interesting part of it, yeah? if you check the Union building, uh, that was a combination of Cape, Natal, Transvaal, and Free State. Mm-hmm. Check, uh, the whole uh, the whole building in the middle, the east part represents the Boer, the, uh, and the West part represents the Anglo. So when you check the Union building, uh, the East part is a replica of the West. Very mm. interesting. But uh, I just want to tell you something. If you check this date, it's one May. Mm. Uh, it's one May. Uh, in the end of the Anglo War, mm. 1902. At the time, is a, a formation of the Union Building. Mm. It's one May, 1961. South Africa became a republic. Mm. Very interesting. And then, at the time, May, 2001, at the time, May, they put uh, the stage of Fairwood uh, in uh, Corner, Farmer Wild, and Chesky. These are not. Uh, you, you are very knowledgeable, hey, Chris. Yes, uh, it's one May, uh, 2001, after 40 years, it fell on itself. Mm. It just fell. Same day, yeah, that was a uh, same month, that was uh, different year. Yeah, that was very, very you, fascinating. That, that 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 was quite remarkable. It's actually straight on who succeeded for both. Uh, yeah, it was a kind of, he, 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 
kind of Brazilian brutalism architecture. But you're right, yeah, it's precisely. Also, ironically enough, it was on the man's birthday that if that the that that uh, the statue collapsed in Pretoria, I think, yeah, and from Yellen Street, I think. Or, Maybe it's not a coincidence. <laughs> Um, Let's look at some of the WhatsApps that have come through. One says, the following people were also involved in the South African war. Mahatma Gandhi was working in the medical contingent. Winston Churchill as a reporter and General Louis Buerta that comes from Hasmuk in Mondio. An SMS on the SMS line says, there were a number of Italians that also fought on the side of the Boers against the British forces, is what they are Mm. saying. And then another person is asking, where were the Malays that came to South Africa in 1652 during the war? Uh, they were mainly in, in, in Cape Town. Um, there was a uh, there, there was a there wasn't explicitly a, a so-called coloured contingent who fought in the war, mm. but but some coloureds joined what was called the town guard in Cape Towns to keep the Boers out. So, yeah, that's a brief answer to that. And uh, Mahatma Gandhi, yes, he was a, he was a stretcher bearer during the, during the Anglo-Boer War, uh, on the side of the British, of course. And, uh, yeah. Let's look at some of the WhatsApp voice notes. Hey, so regarding the so-called Anglo-Boer War, it is better described as the South African War, because bear in mind that as much as Boers suffered um, under the English invasion or British invasion and occupation, black South Africans also really suffered very badly. There were thousands of them in concentration camps, displaced from their land, forced to fight on either the Boer or the British side, sometimes both. Uh, they were put in an impossible situation and have also suffered immensely. Some of those scars still linger today. So while the suffering of the Boers is very important to talk about, let's not forget black South Africans also had a very hard time during this era. Thank you so much. And I think, you know, that's an important part of the conversation um, is reminding that, yes, um, it being popularly known as the Anglo-Boer War gives the impression that others were not participating or involved. Good afternoon, it's Selma from Rurupur. I have some uh, Boer War stories. My uh, one um, grandfather from my dad's side, he was probably what you would call a draught sitter, somebody sitting on the fence. When the Boers came Mm. past, he would give them uh, proviant, as you would call it, Um, and tell them which were the English went, and when the English came past, he would give them food and tell them where where the Boers went, sort of. And that way, he sort of stayed out of the war and stayed alive, and his farm was also still okay. But on the other hand, on my mom's side, there was uh, one of her uncles that was apparently shot as a farrier or traitor. Now, whether he had joined the English forces, I really don't know. She didn't give me much information. But that's about as far as my family was involved years ago. Thanks for a lovely program. Bye. Thank you so much. What a great and interesting story and way of surviving and stay neutral and help everybody. I yeah, can I just here. No. You know what? Today's masterclass, I love it, I love it, I love it. I love history. I'm one guy that, you know, if you talk history, I'm like on ears and everything is open. I want to listen. I'm so fascinated and it is so intriguing to hear the whole stories really of the Boers and the British. And, you know, it makes one even 
think as well as see exactly why the Boers are really so passionate about South Africa, if I put it that way. It is really intriguing. Thank you so much. One last voice note, Prof, and then we come back oh, to you. Henry Bukhila, you were asking about uh, any war stories from the Boer War. Um, in 1968, my grandfather passed away, but he lived with us for a little while before he did. And uh, I remember him telling me, I asked him about, was he involved in the Boer War? And he grew up in a, a place called Barclay East. As a young boy, he was conscripted into the British Army. Now, um, they were originally from Ireland in the 1820s, uh, so although he was born here in South Africa. He, uh, they came along, they conscripted them to the, into the, uh, uh, the army. And he said he went out horse riding one day with the, with the little troop that they were in. And while they were riding, suddenly they came under heavy fire. Uh, they hid behind some rocks. And when they stuck their heads out again, the Boers had gone. They had been firing at them. And um, they were then went back to their base. And much to his relief, the next day, peace was uh, declared and signed. So that was his involvement in the Boer War. He could go then back as a 16 or 17-year-old, whatever he was then, uh, back to the farm. Thanks, Chaz. This is Eugene, by the way. Thank you so much, Eugene. And to all of the WhatsApps that are coming through, I'm seeing Annie saying, apparently Sammy Marks also helped both the Boers and the Brits. Prof, such amazing stories that are coming through from our listeners. Yeah, no, I just want to comment on Eugene's remark about Barclay East because I grew up, part of my youth I spent in Barclay East. I'm familiar with that area. And... Uh, those were tough people out there on mm. many levels. Uh, it's cold. But anyway, uh, I just found that interesting that Barclay should pop up here. Um, yes. Uh, um, uh, and I also want to agree with the, the one listener who made a point that blacks suffered equally, uh, uh, if not more. I mean, uh, that, I think one should take that as, as being red. And... Uh, Yes, so I'll, I'll leave it at that for the moment, unless you've got other questions. Uh, Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I do want to read an, a story that came through in the WhatsApp yeah. line. It says, Hi, Rilebkhile, love your show. I am a granny myself now, but always have a chuckle when I tell the story of my parents' courtship. Dad, from Afrikaans background but raised English, asked for mom's hand in marriage. Her parents were both immigrants, but she was born in Cape Town. The two families were horrified. You see, Afrikaners supported Buerta and the English supported Smuts. They were arch enemies with Anglo-Boer war wounds still festering. To add insult to injury, dad was Dutch Roman church and mom Catholic. They compromised by uh, getting married in a central Methodist church in Johannesburg and became one another's family's favorite in-laws. So just a beautiful story to end it on. Um, Professor, I feel like there are so many stories we didn't even touch on. And I'm so, so grateful that you're sitting with all of this knowledge. Um, I'm seeing messages coming through from the listeners saying thank you. Thank you so much for this masterclass. And I know for a fact we're going to chat again because you're sitting with a wealth of information and knowledge on our history. Thank you so much, Professor Albert Grundlich, Emeritus Professor at the University of Stellenbosch.